Welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast covering every single horror movie franchise. One movie and usually one episode at a time, but because we'll get into why we're doing two episodes on Dream Master here in a moment. Um, short answer, because I feel like it, but I'm sure there's going to be some more detail there. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, joined once again by my co-host, Jerry Smith. Jerry, how are you feeling tonight? I'm doing great, man. I just started working out for the first time in years today, and it was the worst experience of my life. So I had what that cold shower, do? and I'm feeling good. <laughs> what did no, you I do? Just, What's the workout? Well, I mean, without going super into detail, in my, like my past, I've had an eating disorder most of my life. So it's been in, like really hard for me to gain weight. And for some reason, just during quarantine, it all caught up with me. So, you know, like lately, I was just like, I just don't feel that great about myself right now. You know, I want to, you know, make myself... I want to feel better in my own skin, so I'm going to work out. Started doing it today, and like, I don't know, man, 45 minutes into it, I, I was wishing for death. Yeah. Like, I admire people like Brian Kuyper and all these people that we know that, like, are so into the gym, because like, oh my god. And I was doing it at home, so. Yeah, yeah. it is. I'm really good at video game sports at this point. Um, <laughs> this summer, I spent a couple days a week with, like, middle schoolers at this... Um, basically summer school program that was supposed to be part education, part social emotional learning and part like athletics. And it turned into all athletics. So I spent like this summer playing Quidditch and kickball and tap, tap touch football and handball with these like seventh and eighth grade super athletes. And I'm very, I'm not a good athlete, but I'm very competitive. So there were times where maybe it got a little bit ugly. There were times at the the last day, I'm like, all right, I just want to do all the adults versus the kids, and let's absolutely ruin these children right now. Let's so, yeah. I've I've always been so jealous of people like you that are super athletic. Like, I have a very... Well, I mean, you enjoy it, though, right? I enjoy it. Like, I I have an overactive thyroid, too. So, Mm -hmm. like, if I... Anytime I'd play football, like, I would, like, last a literal five minutes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they would be like, okay, well, you wasted our time, motherfucker. Yeah, up until... But anyways, uh... Up until two years ago, I never felt my weight. And now I do. So I've been trying to get back in a healthier groove. It caught up with me in my early 40s. All right, but no one is here for that. So... (laughs) Let us introduce our guest right now. We have first from the spinstersofhorror.com and also the I Spit on Your Podcast, which just celebrated 
their two-year anniversary, anniversary nice. we have Kelly Gredner. Hello. Thanks for having me. You know, while we're on this, Kelly, what, what can you bench press? Let's, let's just, you know, <laughs> since we're on the... Um, I hate physical exercise, and I tried yoga for the first time last week uh, because I've been dealing with, sadly... Stress and anxiety and a lot of really boring things for the first time in my life. So I thought, hey, yoga seems to be a popular thing that a lot of people like. So I tried yoga and I hated it. It's the worst. <laughs> I love I yoga. Hate it. Oh, I know people that swear by <laughs> yoga and it is uh, it's personally the worst. Uh, I have like a love-hate, mainly just a hate-hate relationship with exercise. Throughout my life, I've gone mm-hmm. kind of back and forth with Things like dance, kickboxing, boxing, wrestling. I went to the gym to do a bunch of like weight training, strong person training, but it just, uh, I have yeah. a hard time sticking with stuff. Same here. And I heard <laughs> in the background, we have Welcome Back to the Show. I think it's his third or fourth time on the show um, at this point. We have from Gaily Dreadful, the Scarred for Life podcast, and now the editor in chief of the new We Are Horror Zine. We have one of the hardest working men in horror today, <laughs> Terry Menard. Terry, how are we doing? You know, I'm just over here daydreaming about one major league hunk. <laughs> <laughs> right? Oh, right. Excellent. No, Dan. Excellent. Dan. Dan. Yeah. yeah, Dan. Dan. So, Although so, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't kick either out of bed in the morning. Nope. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm more of a Rick. I think I'm more of a Rick over Dan right now. <laughs> Um, my daughter, when watching this movie, is like, he's just a haircut. Like, that was her reaction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, everybody was in the 80s. It's fine. True. That is true. All right. <laughs> so my first question for our esteemed panel today is, what was your first experience with this movie? And to let listeners know, like, why we're doing multiple episodes on this is I basically threw it out to Twitter, like, who wants to come on the Elm Street series? And I'll just call a bunch of people that were interested And I'll pick from that list for each episode. And we got this overwhelming response for Dream Master, which really surprised me. And all four people are all people that I want to have on the show. So I'm like, you know, rather than have tell two people that I want to hear from, no, or try to have six voices on, which I think could be a bit much. um, I'm like, let's break it in two. So... Yeah, on that note, now that I lost track of thought, um, <laughs> Kelly, what is your first experience with this film and like what what calls to you with this movie? Um, since it's been in my life for 25 years, I couldn't tell you like the first time that I actually experienced it. But what I can tell you is that when it comes to Nightmare on Elm Street, the franchise, in my mind, it's very vividly stuck. It's Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one, and Dream Master, the fourth one. Like, I love, it's one of my favorite franchises, Scream being the other one, and I love all of the movies, but these two, the first one and and number four, always stick out in my mind. And I love many, many things, and a lot of things we'll talk about today, but uh, I just ended up, I grew up with the Dream Master. For whatever reason, I didn't, Dream Warriors didn't resonate with me. None of the other ones necessarily resonated with me enough, maybe because I was a kid of the 90s. You know, and this one just always, I think it has a lot of heart. I'm very, you know, sentimentally and emotionally attached to it. I think because I loved it at such a, you know, formidable time in my life. So 
Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that because I, we're going to talk about many things that I love about it today. So no it's problem. just been in my life for such a long time. It's a comfort film of mine. I know this movie inside and out. I have already watched it now probably three times during the pandemic in the last six months. And I just love everything about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is an endlessly rewatchable movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I've come to the, realize that late in the game here. It's one of those movies that I'll always, if it's on, will always like watch from whatever point to finish. Mm-hmm. And if I'm just, like you said, a comfort movie, if I'm just looking for something to kick back to and enjoy, mm-hmm. it is going to be like right near the top of the pile when it comes to this series, which is my favorite series that we've that we a that we've covered but really my favorite series period Mm -hmm. terry how about yourself so you know i i saw this when i was young um i know it came out in 88 so i probably saw it in 89 or maybe 90 at the latest and it was at a time where i don't i don't have a vivid memory of which movie i saw which like movies in the series i saw first except that i saw the first one first but um, the reason why I gravitated to this one as a as a kid before I, I I knew exactly why it resonated with me was the simple fact that there was um, at our local video store up in Alaska they would put out uh, their their VHS tapes or their betas after like you know they've been circulated through the shelf and they needed to get rid of some. Well, this I had a beta machine in my room because my parents had upgraded to a VHS. And this was in the beta rack, but it was at a time where it was a beta tape in a VHS cover. Oh my. <laughs> and I I had it and I just remember because it was mine, it was one of the first movies that I that I owned for myself that I was just constantly constantly watching it. Mm-hmm. Um and so for me this this was more so than any other film, A Nightmare on Elm Street. I didn't realize at the time that it was kind of a direct continuation from the Dream Warriors. I didn't realize any of that. To me, this was the movie, because I owned it and I had it, that that spoke of what A Nightmare on Elm Street was. And then since then, it's just, it's I, some of it is nostalgia, but um, I started to realize later in the life just how much um, I identified with with the character of Alice. And I think that she is... And we'll get into this, but I think she's one of the the best final girls in all mm-hmm. of cinema. But this is my favorite series, like like you, Mike. Um, it's I I have such a connection to it over any of the other '80s uh, franchises or any of the other ones. Like Scream is probably close second, but yeah, it's just it's this movie for whatever reason has just has just always been my go to, my comfort food, everything that we've all we've all just kind of talked about. Yeah, and Jerry, I think you're kind of on the same wavelength. I know we were talking off air online this week, and you had mentioned Let Slip, like this is probably your favorite of the whole series. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. And I, I know that's kind of a controversial take or whatever, but Dream Master is a nightmare on Elm Street to me. Uh, I, you know, I, on previous episodes, I spoke about, you know, being abused as a kid, and my mom would put me in theaters, basically, because she got her back broken by my stepdad, and would put me in theaters from when I woke up, basically, until nighttime to get me away from my stepdad, because we lived next to a theater. And 1987, and especially 88, were so huge for me, as far as falling in love with horror, but kind of like living vicariously through films. And uh, the Dream Master was the first film in the in the whole franchise that I watched. You know, it, it was it was the year that you know 
multiple films that to this day are some of my favorite films of all time came out because I latched onto them because I was this little kid dying for dying to, to feel protected, dying to feel something, you know, feeling myself in different characters. And, you know, Halloween four is to this day, one of my 10 favorite films of all time and dream master. I mean, you know, I was scared as I was scared to death of Freddy Krueger, just the idea, you know, kids on the playground would talk about how scary he was. So I stayed away from the series and during one of those th theater days of trying to like stay in the theater as much as possible, you know, I saw this movie with no experience with the first three whatsoever. And I just remember laughing the entire time in such a great way. Like that, it, you know, like I don't remember much about childhood because obviously PTSD is a bitch sometimes, but I do remember very specific things. I remember laughing hysterically watching Dream Master thinking like, this is so imaginative. And I think that that's one of the big reasons I love the movie is not just because it meant a lot to me at that age of needing to find something to relate to, but also the idea of Freddie and what he represents and the uh, potential of the series as far as like just the uh, fantastical elements, I think is on full display greater than any other film in the franchise with this movie. It is everything a Nightmare on Elm Street should be. And like, like Terry said, uh, you know, me, like Alice to me is one of the horror characters that I identify with more than anything. You know, I, I've, speak, I've spoken about this in the past about Laurie Strode and all these other characters. You know, I, I identify with Final Girls more than any heroes because I wasn't, I didn't feel like a hero as a kid. I felt like a little kid that was preyed on and had to find, you know, your own courage. And Alice, Alice, I, I think, and this is another controversial thing, so I apologize to any uh, listeners. I think Alice is is the MVP of any fine girl, final girl in the entire Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. I agree. Yeah, I would She's say fantastic. she. Fantastic. Yeah, I would say she gets. You know what? Let's pull a little bit of a curveball. This is usually the spot where we talk a little bit about the history of the movie or like horror at the time. But I think what what I'm hearing is everyone here wants to dive into talking about this cast and these characters. Am I on the right track there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love it. That's let's do that. Yeah. For me, that's one of like one of the main things that I love about Nightmare Four is the cast of characters, is the acting, is the dialogue, the chemistry, Alice. It's it's so awesome. It's so brilliant. So yeah, let's do that. So to me, what this not just this movie, but what this series gets right. Like by Friday the thirteenth part five you had gotten this formula where you start to not like the characters in the movie. Mm -hmm. And there are some exceptions. You get Reggie the Reckless and you get Demon. Um, so, you know, there are some people you still kind of root for. But it really, by like 1988, like I think when we talked about A New Blood, like there was like no likable characters mm -hmm. to me in that movie mm -hmm. overall. And what I think Bob Shea and Rachel Talalay and the folks over at New Line Cinema really understood at its core was like you as cool as Freddie was and as much as you kind of root for him you still what brings people in and what brings the kids in is like having these characters that everyone could identify with and i think that that is one of the key strengths like even the lesser elm street movies even like i'm not as much of a fan of dream child and I know that a lot of people don't like Freddy's Dead as much as I do, mm -hmm. but I love all of the characters in those movies, mm -hmm. and there's a real chemistry that's there. 
Like I remember when I was watching this with Ada this week, like she was watching the movie and she's like, oh man, I hope Rick doesn't get killed. Mm -hmm. And then when he does die, she's like, well, that sucks. Mm -hmm. Like I really like him. Like she would get legitimately bummed out as opposed to like, oh, I can't wait to see what the next death is. The one character she didn't love was Alice, which I found really fascinating. It was like, (laughs) she's like, why does my least favorite character live? That's heartbreaking. Yeah. I'm like, sell (laughs) her, but no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, but honestly, like, I think that that's where the franchise gets it right. Uh, I mean, obviously, Freddy is the focal point, and I understand why. I mean, Robert England is larger than life in the best of ways. But I think what the Nightmare series gets so right is the fact that you care about the people. I mean, even coming in from Dream Warriors, which is a film that I notoriously do not like. Like, one thing I can appreciate about that movie is that you feel like the the characters like each other. You feel like it's Mm -hmm. a tight group. You you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. with Dream Master, they just take that... And, and run with it. I mean, mm-hmm. there isn't a single character in this film that I either don't remember knowing, you know, yeah. in school or or I was. You know what I mean? Like every single yeah. character, they don't feel like caricatures. No. Uh, you yeah. know, they, they feel like real people and, and the situations feel real. And I think that that's very crucial when dealing with like very fantastical kind of plots and, you know, suspension of disbelief and like, you know, the idea of dreams having the characters based in reality and being able to identify with them. I mean, it just sets the whole movie up to just be spiked like, you know, like volleyball or something. Well, and then the last, the last two movies in particular, and I mean, you could probably make a a case for all the, all the movies, the characters are all, they're the misfits, you know, they're, you know, it's, it's the, the kind of punky uh, Debbie or it's the, the nerdy Sheila, or it's, um, you know, the, even, even Kristen, who's like the rich girl, she's like, yeah, you probably think I'm a freak because she was in the previous episode in a mental institution, you know? So that, like, these are all the, these aren't the, the really the popular kids, even though they kind of look like they could be the popular kids. They're all sort of the misfits. And I think that that is something that is, is really interesting about, it feels authentic about them when compared to a lot of the other teenage characters in um, horror movies, especially of the eighties. For sure. And what I would add to that is that what I think they attempted and initiated in Dream Warriors, they perfected in the Dream Master. Oh, yeah. And I'm I'm sad that generally the Dream Master doesn't get as much love and, and attention and affection that uh, I think it deserves. Yeah. And, you know, Terry, you had just said how this was the Gang of Misfits. One of the things I really like about this particular cast is the way they kind of float between social Mm. cliques. Like it's a pretty diverse Mm -hmm. group of people Mm -hmm. overall. Like Rick, you know, would normally be someone who would maybe avoid someone like Dan. Yep. Totally. The two kind of seek one another out. Um, And I think that does speak to like when you watch a John Hughes movie, like I'm thinking the breakfast club right now, you have these like, completely defined social circles and you don't move from Mm -hmm. without that boundary until you have like a moral lesson at the end like maybe we're all the same and i don't know like my high school experience was yeah we all have our cliques and we tend to find our people but you also kind of float between that a little bit and i thought this did a much better job of like accurately portraying high school the late 80s and i really thought about that especially when um we get introduced to to um 
Debbie and then also Sheila because, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Debbie goes up to Sheila and, you know, she's like, oh, there's my salvation. This is a person that's going to be able to, you know, save me because I've been watching <laughs> Dynasty. <laughs> and like Sheila just calls her out on it. She's like, Dynasty yeah. again? You know, <laughs> she's like, so it's like <laughs> they, they feel like they know each other. They feel like that even when they're ribbing each other, it comes from kind of this place of affection. Whereas like in other movies, it would be a little bit more like, oh, God, you're so stupid, right? It's yeah. So it, there's there's this authenticity to it that just really, as an adult, I find so incredibly charming about this well, movie. Well, because we all do that, you know? Right. I, I think one of my favorite things to do on this show is give Mike shit about movies that he doesn't like that I do <laughs> or vice versa. Like if there's any opportunity for me to just like <laughs> rib him about Mandy, like I, I jump at that. You know, and I, I think that that's that's <laughs> part of the Mandy. charm of this movie. That's part of the charm is that like these are real people. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I remember being in high school, and like I was kind of a an interesting conundrum of a person in high school too. I mean, I was a straight A student that skateboarded, you know, and hung out with like gangsters and like bookworms. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> the, like the John Hughes movies, like you said, like they, you know, they have this kind of like set agenda of what you know clicks are but Mm -hmm. growing up like i didn't experience that i was friends with everyone and it seems like those were the coolest people to be like the people that the be around the people that actually you know were friends with like multiple kind of kinds of clicks and stuff yeah i i totally agree with that and i you know terry you had mentioned like sheila and debbie in a lesser movie that relationship is set up like... Yeah, it would be antagonistic. Mm-hmm. Right? And there's a real warmth. And like Sheila gives it back to Debbie just as good as Debbie gives it to her. And then the two of them kind of, you know, turn on the, jock, you know, your trope jock character mm-hmm. and immediately like question his manhood in a way that drives him away. That is like really <laughs> hilarious. So Kelly, which characters like aside from Alice, like which of these characters like stood out for you, or what was it about the chemistry? Because I have your notes here where you talk a little bit about the chemistry. What really stood out to you in terms of like why it feels like gives you the warm and fuzzies? Mm-hmm. Well, everything that everybody already said, of course. Um, it's and now that I have seen um, in real life the the actual chemistry between the actors um, with the anniversary reunion, which will like we'll try to like remind me, we'll talk about that later, but we, we um, well, we can see that truly. And I did an interview with Nick Benson, who is one of the people who did the special effects for nightmare four. And um, this is kind of jumping into the a little bit of the the production and everything of the movie, but there was a writer strike at the time, and that made a lot of the cast, all, a lot of the actors, like kind of come together, and they actually wrote a lot of their own dialogue, and like definitely uh, for sure the if you remember the the post Kristen scene where Rick and Alice are watching the video. Like, they wrote that whole mm-hmm. scene themselves. Andrus Jones and Lisa Wilcox. And I think just because the the problematic aspects and the upset that happened during the production of the movie, they had to really, like, band together to get this movie together. You know what I mean? And 
they created those characters almost themselves. And so I think that's really relatable. And I think that trans translates brilliantly onto the screen. I do love Alice. Do I, I don't necessarily um, see myself in Alice. I've been, I wasn't really the person I kind of like slowly transformed. I've been a pretty confident, well-rounded person since I was a teenager. However that happened, I couldn't tell you those, that secret magic, black magic maybe. <laughs> But I love Debbie. Debbie, besides Alice, Debbie stands out in my mind a lot because she's this strong woman. She loves to work out. She's got the big hair and she wears the leather jacket. That's probably where I relate to her. And, you know, she's just such a warm and fuzzy person where when you would look at her, you wouldn't think so. And I love those types of characters that they look, all, look tough. And she is tough for sure in a lot of ways. She's one of those strong female characters, but... A, a humanized, well-rounded, strong female character. And she's friends with everyone. And I love Debbie. It's also my favorite death scene. So there's mm -hmm. that. <laughs> yeah, it is the, I think the standout death scene in the whole series. And I know we'll definitely talk mm -hmm. about that in a little bit when we kind of cover the, um, excuse me, when we cover some of the effects. But, you know, the one thing that stood out to me, and I thought I had it here in my notes, and maybe I deleted it. Um, Tuesday night is put in this really unenviable <laughs> yeah. position in this movie. Um, Patricia Ar Arquette, De uh, brother of David, which I never Sister. put two and two Sister. together and realized. <laughs> Sorry. You know, she, she did not give us her pronouns at the start. <laughs> so she of the could show, be David so... Arquette's brother. You know, we are. We could be assuming you're right, sister of David Arquette. I'm it's sorry. Okay. Um, I never put two and two together, and apparently never realized Patricia Arquette was a woman. My God, I can't speak. Um, we'll have to edit a little bit, but I have lost track of Patricia that. Arquette. Yeah, no, yeah. she she declines to come back for a number of reasons. Number one. Um, she had a nightmare of an experience making the third one. She clashed with Chuck Russell a lot, who put her through hell. Um, but also she was looking to move on to more dramatic roles, and obviously she was very successful in that. So Tuesday night has to replace Patricia mm -hmm. Arquette, and she has to not only straddle these two social cliques. And I think one of the things this movie does well is it does in a very brief amount of time, set up tension between the cast from the Dream mm -hmm. Master versus this whole new clique of people that Kristen has really, it really was her, her, her people mm -hmm. before all of these nightmares started. But she has to have this chemistry with Rodney Eastman um, and mm -hmm. Kincaid that's just not there. And they both speak of that on the Never Sleep Again yep. documentary. That's a really hard... Well, you, to you got to take into consideration, definitely, that, I mean, they were so tight on, on Dream Warriors, you know? Like, like we, you know, mm -hmm. we spoke to Ira Hayden, who played Will in Dream Warriors a couple days ago, and he was talking about how they were just kind of, like, almost like a brotherhood. They were so tight. Mm -hmm. So, to come back for another movie, you know, Rodney Eastman and, you know, Ken mm -hmm. Sagos, like... You know, they came into this and the character that they were like friends with, with Patricia Arquette's Kristen, is gone. It's replaced yeah. with someone they don't really know, yet they're supposed to have that chemistry that we fell in love with in the third film. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and all that stuff. And it, there definitely feels like something of a disconnect at first between them. I, You know, Rodney and Ken, the guys that play, you know, Joey and Kincaid, they, they feel tight. They feel like they've, they're on this groove together. 
mm-hmm. you know, and I, Tuesday, like I, I feel bad for every time I see this movie because it's just, mm-hmm. you could tell it's just not there between those three. And it's, it's awesome that they've all become friends from the convention circuit and all that stuff through the years. But during the film, you know, it's like, man, it must have been rough. And you also, I got this idea too, that like Rodney, um, well, sorry. Yeah. Kincaid, Joey, and excuse me, Kristen, they were kind of thrown into a situation in dream warriors where you kind of bond very quickly, but they weren't friends before that. And now you kind of see two of the group kind of wanting to go their own way and bury that past. And it's something that Kristen just isn't able to do. And I think we've seen that happen in real world situations before. And I think, you know, Tuesday night does a much better job. I think with maybe the new members of the cast, um, kind of developing that chemistry and those like lived in friendships. Yeah. I also think that there might've been some kind of um, animosity in terms of the situation that they were kind of pulled back into like, you know, die so, so soon. Cause I, yeah. and I was listening, I was watching, well, listening, I was watching the never sleep again um, documentary this week for prep. And um, I, I thought it was interesting that that ken talks about you know he he's a black man that survived um a horror movie and they bring him back to just kill him with like on what page 10 (laughs) Mm -hmm. so like i i feel like that there might be some animosity there on top of the fact that they probably don't have as much of a chemistry with this new cast member that they obviously would have with uh patricia he even says like don't get your popcorn (laughs) right you'll miss me go right to your seat one of the things that I do love about uh, the returning characters in this is that Ronnie Eastman completely does a, a 180 from how he played Joey in Dream Warriors. Like, Joey yeah, is he's so much less fucking, horny in this one. Joey is so badass in this movie. Just the way... No, no, no. I'm not saying the waterbed thing. Like, fuck that. I've never liked that scene. But, like, no, like, he comes off, like... Like a James Dean type, whereas in the previous mm-hmm. movie, you know, it was he was just he got a glow there. up this episode, and like he got a glow up this episode. Oh yeah, <laughs> he really did. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> he got rid of the murder tattoo. The little oh god, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he he left the gang. He left the gang that he got worked the out. Off, so you know, he he didn't kill anyone else. But yeah, I, I love Ronnie mm-hmm. Eastman in this movie. Like he's he, like both of those guys. I wish they would have survived the entire movie. Because I mean, those are those are cool characters, and even though I I mean I don't like Dream Warriors at all, I, I see good things in it, and I think that the the tight knit unit of that movie really works, and it kind of sucks that they're just kind of discarded. You yeah, know? yeah. Kent Sagos is so much fun mm-hmm. as Kincaid, and it's a real, and you know, it's a shame that he's killed off so quickly when. I think he he's just funny and like his delivery is fantastic, um, you know, and he's just one of those really strong, memorable, memorable characters. And it's a little bit telling and a little bit on the nose that the two persons of color in this movie, they're the first members of the friend group to get mm-hmm. killed off. Yeah, it's yeah. true. Like Immediately yeah. disposed of. And it's kind of a bummer. It's really a bummer when any of these characters get killed off in this one, to be quite honest. I kind of dig all of them. Um, so let's talk Alice. Um, what is it, like Terry and Kelly, what is the appeal there? Because I know you both feel that she is one of the strongest kind of horror heroines that are out there. So let's talk about that appeal and what makes Lisa Wilcox so good in, in these well, two movies. For, for me, it's... 
I was, I, I kind of was Alice. Um, I was a daydreamer. I spent a lot of time, um, in my, in my thoughts and in my daydreams, uh, coming up with like, you know, things that I, I w- should have said, or I would have liked to have said if I had had more confidence. Um, and I just, just the way that, that she sort of lives in that, in that fantasy world kind of was, was kind of how I was growing up. Um, I was kind of a lonely kid living in Alaska because people in Alaska, you were either there for uh, the military. So you were going to move out or you were there for other reasons. And it just, it didn't seem like it was really hard to make friends. And I had a hard time making friends as it was. So in my mind, I I was Alice and these characters were kind of my, my friends in, in some kind of weird way. And growing up and watching this movie, because um, this was a constant go back for me, even through like um, high school, um, I started to see like when I when I started to realize that maybe I I was gay. That she, I mean, I know Nightmare on Elm Street Two is obviously the one that everyone talks about being the gay one, but like if you are a closeted person and you are in a school or in a place where like you really want to go up to the popular guy in school, but you can't because you know that if you say anything, you're probably going to get your ass whooped. You, you start to have that daydream about it. So like just to see her kind of go from this very closeted and very wallflower character to someone that owns her sexuality, that owns her, her confidence that kind of flirts with identity because as, as you know, the, the, the conceit of this movie is that as, as her friends die, she kind of gains their power. So she starts to act like them and dress like them. And she plays around with different identities and she eventually finds one that works for her. And it's that power herself that ends up ultimately uh, winning the day. I just, I find there's something so, fascinating and and authentic in that character um and i think that she actually goes through a journey that a lot of final girls don't really Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i would agree with that final statement for sure she is alice is truly unique um not just as a general whole quote final girl trope in up until now our nightmare on elm street final girls and jesse um as wonderful as everybody is, as wonderful as Nancy is, and she's resourceful and she is smart and she is quick mm-hmm. and she is clever and Nancy Thompson is fantastic. Um, she doesn't go through a transformation no. like this. No, Nancy is just awesome from the get go. That's just who she is. And that's again, that's from she's formidable. And that is, you know, it's. I applaud her for being as awesome as she is from the get go. And that's, and that's great. But Alice, like you said, she goes through this incredible transformation and unique in the sense that we haven't seen this before. We haven't seen our final girl take in the essence and the powers from the other people, mainly women, mainly Mm -hmm. women in this movie. Um, Side note, fantastic female protagonist. I love all of them equally. And uh, so she takes all of their unique abilities, their special powers, whether it be physical strength, mental strength, you know, uh, Kristen's special ability to bring people into her dreams, Rick's, you know, um, martial arts, you know, it's, it's, she brings it all together. And she, ha- I think she has a wonderful base found, like foundation there, builds upon that to 
actually take on hand-to-hand combat. Again, we haven't seen that before. And she's Alice and faces Freddy herself. And I, that's kind of like the main reason why I think she stands out amongst everyone. And she is also, she is my favorite from the night. Probably, you know what, if I had to think about it and say it right now, my favorite final girl ever. I will agree with Terry on that. I'm with you on that. She is underrated and underappreciated. Well, and another thing that I kind of, I kind of realized watching it um, this time was the way that, the way that she, um, the, the way that she defeats Freddy is, is, is finding that kind of like th- throughout the entire movie, she's afraid of mirrors and it's yeah. only when she is able to take away all the pictures around her mirror and actually face herself mm-hmm. and, and see herself for, for the, the powerful woman that she is. Mm-hmm. And then she realizes that, you know, she can use that to turn on, on Freddie and that's what ultimately destroys him. I think that's, I think that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And she also has the most, um, like real fear because you you see all these other people's fear and you know and i I mean yeah sheila has asthma i mean that that's obvious but like the bugs and everything her fear is that she's afraid she's gonna be stuck in this little cafe taking care of her alcoholic father until the day he dies and that she's going to be this old woman and she is never going to amount to anything that is a real fucking fear Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. legitimate yep yeah totally i you know when i think of alice it's an odd connection, but I can't help but think of uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Mm. And the reason for that is like one of Warren's go-to talking points over and over again, when whether she's talking about um, basically stripping power away from the banks or talking about why millionaires and billionaires should more, pay more of their fair share of taxes is she really does an amazing job of de- of basically demystifying this tale of American exceptionalism. And if you pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you can be anything that you want. What Warren talks about a lot in her speeches is nobody builds anything alone. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter if you're Bill Gates, if you're Jeff Bezos, if you were Steve Jobs, like they didn't create anything 100% on their own, that everything is built on the backs of whether it be just the workers that keep the lights on, whether it be your engineers, whatever it is, you always have a team of people that kind of help you build and help you create and help you become better. And Alice is very much a character that absorbs, like Kelly, you had said, she absorbs the strengths and the goodness from the people that are around her and she builds on that um and she also along the way discovers that the strengths that are within her as well and she's able to get some new skills from others but also see what makes herself not totally at that point and it's something that like when i when I counsel people, like one of the fundamentals I use is like what I would call like strength-based counseling. Meaning if I have a kid that really struggles taking tests, but they're a star athlete, we might deconstruct what makes them so good at shooting free throws and then try to adapt that into a skill that they can use when they take exams. That kind of like slowing their thinking down, controlling their breathing, taking control of over their body and using those skills in a new way. And Alice is very much that character in this movie. Like she is building these new strengths. And that's why I think of 
Professor uh, Senator Professor Warren is like she's very much saying, look, there are all these strengths that others have out there, and we all as a community kind of tap into them to improve ourselves. That and Alice isn't just trying to save her friends. I mean, I I love the first film very much. But, I mean, when all is said and done, Nancy's whole motivation is basically trying to, you know, save her friends because they can't save themselves. And what I love about Alice is she's not just trying to save them like like you guys, all of you said. She kind of becomes them in a lot of ways. She inherits their best traits and things she loves about them. She becomes kind of like a living embodiment of their best Mm -hmm. parts. And I, I feel like she gets a really wonderful character arc that a lot of people in these films don't get. That and, you know, like... Anyone who was kind of very shy and reserved growing up. I mean, you know, Terry, you mentioned identifying with Alice. I mean, I definitely did, you know. Mm -hmm. I hung out with a lot of people, but I was always kind of the Alice of the group, whereas I hung out with a lot of cool people, but I was always the quiet quiet one in the very back of the group, you know. And and Alice – Alice doesn't really know who she is at the beginning of this movie. She's confused. She kind of stays to herself. She looks at Sheila, she looks at every other character, and she admires things about them. And it's when each character is stripped away from her and they die that she realizes that, like, it's, it's, it's definitely metaphorical. Like, those things are in her, mm-hmm. too. And she picks the best parts of the people that mm-hmm. she loved, and that informs who she really is. And she gets so confident in that that... I mean, fuck, man. I cannot stress enough how great her mm-hmm. arc is. From the even just in through one film. I'm not even counting, you know, the anti-abortion mm-hmm. five. <laughs> like just in this movie, mm-hmm. like the the transformation of the character is so great. Going from that wallflower, as you said, Terry, to at the end just beating the living shit out of Freddy. It's so fun to watch. Mm-hmm. And she beats him not only physically, but mentally. And I love yeah. that as well, because that that's always that common, like, strong female character trope where strong means, you know, the physicality. You're you're physically strong. You're going to be violent. You're going to be masculine. But she she utilizes all of those wonderful things from her female friends to to make her this, like, incredible, well-rounded individual. But in the end, it's her mind that defeats Freddy. And that's awesome because there's those that nice balance of the physicality of it, the physical strength and the mental strength that she has. Well, it proves how forceful, resourceful she is because, she, you know, she first tries to beat him up physically and then she uses mm-hmm. Sheila's machine. And then it's it's her her realization that he can't see himself in the mirror, sort of like how she can. I mean, she's the perfect yes. foil to him in some ways in that regard. And it's 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 all three like like you were talking about Kelly it, it's all it's it's the way that she moves from one to the other because mm-hmm. it's not working and it's that resourcefulness that just is is so intrinsic to her character that makes it mm-hmm. interesting as well yeah and also i think this is another movie that in the elm street series that continues this idea that like parents get in the way of our development mm-hmm. oh my gosh and yes the relationship here with alice uh, and rick with their father who, you know, is in the middle of grieving for his mm-hmm. wife that's deceased, who is struggling with his own uh, alcoholism and who just can't relate. And he's in essence taking out mm-hmm. his sadness, his anger, his grief on his children. Um, and I think it's, I, what I like about part five is how that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I, I do enjoy that. But here, you know, I, I like the fact that the Elm Street series was never afraid to go down this really weird road or this really co- common road where, you know, sometimes par- sometimes your parents just, they fuck up well, and they hurt you in irredeemable and it, ways. It makes actually um, Kristen's death uh, all much sadder because there's, there's, you know, the, the line that like, no mother, yeah. you murdered me. It's like, it's that, it's that realization that no matter what the parents do that they think might be helping is actually in the end harming them. And it, it, it kind of, it's embedded in this, in this mm-hmm. franchise as a whole. It's the idea of like the sins of the parents, you know, foisted on, on the children. But, but this movie and the last one in particular kind of like take it on as this kind of in this, in this in this other direction that not only is it the sense of what they've done, but it's what they continue to keep doing yeah. in what they think is the best interest of their kids that ends up killing them. And that's, that's, that's horrible. <laughs> it's an inability to listen. It's this idea yeah. that, you know, father knows best isn't just a sitcom from the 1950s. It's this idea that I'm the parent. Mm-hmm. So of course I know mm-hmm. more than you. And I can tell you that as a parent, like, when I don't know the answer to something, it's a little bit scary sometimes. Yeah. It's a little bit frightening to realize that I don't have all the answers. I would like to think that I don't react in a way where I would, you know, metaphorically sleep sleeping sleeping pills <laughs> in my daughter's drink if she had a problem that I didn't know how, how to How many solve, pills did she put in that glass? So that water was <laughs> cloudy as fuck. <laughs> without freddie you probably are gonna kill her well i mean it's it's not even this movie either that character in general has always been one that has just turned her back on helping Mm -hmm. Kristen. and i I think that that's one of the things that always stays with me from dream warriors is Kristen's mom how little she cares and how quick she is to kind of like brush her hands of dealing with her child you know and taking the time to kind of address what's going on and listening trying to help you know, in the first film or in the third one, I mean, you know, Kristen's mom's just kind of out and about, you know, doing whatever she's doing with that dude. This one, you know, like so many parents, I know mine, you know, I'm not talking down about medication. I think it works for so many people and I definitely recommend it if you need it. But I mean, there's a lot of parents like growing up, my dad and my stepmom was like that. Instead of talking to me about anything, they would get me on every medication under the sun you know, and it would make me into a zombie. And, you know, and I, I feel like a lot of parents, instead of looking at what the cause of whatever trauma or what they're going through is, you know, medication or sleeping pills or anything else is like the go-to way for it. And in this case, like her mother kind of looks at her as almost like an annoyance that she's sort of like, yes. she's like, well, you know, I'll just go go to sleep, you know, just all this kind of like any way to get her out of her yeah. of having to deal with her it seems like yeah. in, in her both mom's movies. super bored by by dream master she's like oh god Kristen, like <laughs> we've done therapy right. it's been all this time like i'm just tired of this take these sedatives go get some sleep whatever like she's never believed her she thinks she's delusional since the start you know she you know as you i'm sure you folks talked about in for dream wars but like you're doing this for attention, whatever. It's not really a big deal. Despite the her, the intensity of her dreams and her nightmares, she's making all these drawings, these dioramas. She's staying awake. She's Her life is falling apart, yet still not taking it very seriously. And for me in Dream Master, that relationship, 
because, side note, the wonderful thing about Nightmare on Elm Street franchise is that we get that continuation. We got Nancy and her dad, number one, number three. We've got uh, Kristen and her mom, three and four. Alice and her dad, four and five. There's just such a wonderful continuation. You can see um, the transformation of these families. Either they're good or they're bad or they stay the same. And for Kristen, unfortunately, it's very stagnant. And yeah, her mom's bored. Here you go. Here's your sedative. And for me, that is the most emotionally devastating scene in death in that movie because that very yeah. emotional well incredibly well done incredibly well crafted just cinematography and lighting and acting and everything that scene she's like what have you done to me you know and she's like you needed to get some sleep and she's like you know you just murdered me take that to your goddamn therapy and then she dies and i was like this is too much like this is dark this is heavy What's so tragic about that, in my opinion, and maybe I, you know, growing up, I just read too much into every single movie about what happened between movies. <laughs> but like, what's crazy about that is, okay, if you're Kristen's mom, and you don't believe the whole Freddy thing, I get it. It's kind of out there. But the fact is, just a little bit before that, while in a mental institution or a hospital, most of her friends were murdered. <laughs> what do you mean? So maybe show your kid a little bit of compassion. <laughs> I always got the idea that Kristen's mom didn't know or didn't care about mm-hmm. what went on in the mental institute. Out yeah. of sight, out of mind. Yep. Yeah, out of sight, out of yep. mind. I can go play tennis at the club with my girls at this point. Um, you know, I also want to add that as a therapist, I do not recommend. <laughs> Um, drugging your children and please (laughs) please please um if you are taking any prescriptions use them under the care and supervision of a prescriber or a psychiatrist and do not abuse your medication either for yourself i I wish my mom would have said that my mom would have listened to you (laughs) i know i wish you know people should listen to me more (laughs) i want to get a shirt i actually my wife and i were joking and and i told her i want to get a shirt that says just because i'm grumpy doesn't mean i'm not right so she's definitely looking for that so um there's the, the one issue i have with the characterization in this movie is it does have a little bit of like a verse chorus verse feel to it and you start to see characters introduced and they either have this like this thing they're afraid mm-hmm. of and that's how they're done away with like rick has mm-hmm. karate he's killed in his dojo Sheila has asthma. The mm-hmm. air is literally inhaled out of her body. Um, Dan, great hair, charming, world-class hunk. Not much more to say there. Debbie hates bugs, turned into a cockroach, and she's squished. Well, what's, what's funny is like I have that same uh, thought when it comes to that verse, chorus, verse. But what, what I always thought, it was, it was kind of like the Pixies formula. You know, like loud, quiet, loud. Like, you know, we're introduced with the, to these characters and they have all these like quirks about them. And, you know, it's kind of subtle for a little bit. We're just kind of like going along and then those things just pop out and that's how they die. I kind of like that about the movie, though. Like it it kind of because what's funny is like I I think a lot of people could catch on to it, you know, in a good way. I don't I don't mean like, you know, I'm calling it ahead of time, but seeing everything that they're kind of really afraid of as a viewer watching it for the first couple of times, you know, especially the first time you're like. Huh, I bet that's gonna. I bet that's gonna come into play later, and it's kind of exciting right. to go through that. I think. Um, fun fact about some of these, like Brooke Thesis, who uh, plays Debbie in this movie, she 
along with like Heather Langenkamp and uh, from obviously part one and three in New Nightmare and Joanne Willette from Elm Street 2, she goes on to star in Just the Ten of Us, which is a staple for two or three seasons mm-hmm. on ABC's TGIF like Friday night sitcom lineup where you would have like Mr. Belvedere and Home Improvement and um, Full House like so you could get your I remember like I watched probably a dozen episodes of um, just the 10 of us just because Heather Langenkamp was in it and I love the Elm Street movies before I realized that like Freddie's not showing up <laughs> in any of these I loved that show and that whole era man small wonder you know, like oh god, well, right? Is that the one about the robot child? Yes, yeah, Vicky. Yes. Oh god, uh, no, Webster. but just the ten of us was great. I mean, seeing all these kind of like Elm Street alumni. Wow. Well, but yeah, yeah, totally. Well, maybe the word "great" is getting <laughs> thrown around a little bit. Really, really. <laughs> okay, but, well, when I was a yeah. kid, it was pretty cool. All right. Um, so, what do we think about? And, and Kelly, you had mentioned this a little bit, like Rennie Harlan's direction in this movie, because I think he brings like a real visual flair to Elm Street 4 definitely more than what most really what you're getting in other you know slasher movies or horror movies that are like already you know four entries in like he's bringing these real dynamicism to what yeah uh, well he's filming here. I was watching I wasn't I I have seen Never Sleep Again I love that documentary I'll sit down for a million hours watch everything about Nightmare on Elm Street but I think it was the special features with the, the Blu-ray disc uh, that I have the collection but Bob Shea didn't really want Reddy Harlan. He was like this really tall, weird Finnish, right? He's Finnish? (laughs) Swedish. He's Scandinavian. He's so Scandinavian. I love him. Um, So didn't really like him. He was weird. He was like living with a bunch of dudes in some hotel room. You know, he didn't trust him, but then was super surprised by imagination. His imagination. And you can see that in Nightmare 4 so much. Like those, besides I think the whole thing being well done, um, Lighting-wise, cinematography-wise, those dream sequences, I'm sorry, have not been that beautiful yet in the franchise. The Yeah, I agree. They haven't been topped. They have not been topped. The imagination that that man has, just the the cinematography, but the lighting, the lighting's red and green, matches the sweater, and it's just like almost a little bit of like giallo colors, minus having some purple and blues, but it's it's Freddy's Mm -hmm. colors, right? Mm -hmm. And... They are stunning and they're really fun to watch. And one of the many things that I love about this movie is those dream sequences is how fantastical this movie feels with still being scary. I know that a lot of folks don't find it scary. Like I still find the first one to be the scariest per se, because it's dark. He's like, it's very blasphemous. He says, I am God. It's like, it's, it goes there. Um, But this one is, is scary. I, I firmly believe that. And, you know, they you could tell they had a lot of fun creating those dream sequences. Which which parts do you in particular, like which parts do you find the scariest in this one? Oh, let's see. Definitely Debbie's like cockroach saying, that's just mean. Oh. That's just mean. <laughs> those effects, like, man. Just, just the, yeah, just the effect, just the fact that he can like, he just kind of like, he kind of appears in Alice's dream. He kind of, she's at the, she's at the, the diner at the, oh geez. The Craven. Yes. At the Craven. And, uh, oh geez. Now I just put that together. Thank you. <laughs> 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 See, 25 years. I'm still learning something. 
Um, but he just, she's at the, that, oh my God, what is that called? When you're like not at a table, but you're at the bar type. Bar stool, oh. the soda oh, counter. God, thank you. But all of a sudden she's like sitting there and he just appears. And for Debbie, she's doing her weights. And all of a sudden he's just behind her and above her. And it's and a yeah. beautiful just, shot that's a reflection off yeah. of her. Oh my goodness. And there's just, shot. and even in Kincaid's dream, like he knows Freddie is there. He knows he's coming. But I was like, oh, there he is. Like he just appears and he's going to get you. And you know that as soon as he appears in your dream. And I just love that. I love that. And though I don't think I love his one liners, Freddie's one liners in this movie, but I also don't find it too cheesy. Like they're kind of, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit cheesy, but it just adds the dramatic spooky effect to it. So I know um, Jerry said earlier, they doesn't like the, the waterbed scene. <laughs> But my favorite line is, how's this for a wet dream? And like, it's (laughs) silly, but like, oh my goodness, he just grabs him. And I don't know, maybe I have an irrational fear of waterbeds, but come on. (laughs) Well, it's it's interesting because they tried to recycle that line in the remake, but it came off extremely uncomfortable and gross. What did they say? Refresh my memory. Uh, it was basically Freddie, uh, you know, Jackie yeah. Earl Haley's take on Freddie kind of being like rapey towards Nancy. And he said something to her about that. Okay. But like, it, it, it's not as playful as it is with right. Joey. Right. Uh, I, I, I think Rennie Harlan, he's been one of my favorite directors for so long, like since childhood, like he's perfect in this movie prison oh my god i cannot recommend prison enough to any of you listeners that haven't seen it i love that movie with the passion i've been wanting to see that, it oh it's so good so good that and uh i mean man he went on to do die hard 2 cliffhanger i mean such a great action director the yeah, long kiss good night oh dude deep blue sea uh, fuck hello. yes dude but he married really, if he did nothing else he married gina davis well it's, you know what's funny is i don't remember i don't know if you guys remember this but there was a time where jeff goldblum and gina davis were together and rennie harlan and laura dern were together Ooh. and within a span of a year or two both of those people were with the other person wife's person. up like it, dude, were right? they in, this is they took a detour they went to, to the that halloween key party <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> no but also one of my favorite stories uh that Rennie Harlan ever like he tells a lot is when he ran into James Cameron at a party and told him that he was doing the new Nightmare on Elm Street movie and James Cameron's like oh Freddie how are you guys gonna bring it back this time and Rennie Harlan had to look James fucking Cameron in the eye and tell him he was gonna have a dog piss flames onto the ground <laughs> like it's perfect <laughs> it's you know in what um we're talking about like Debbie's death sequence and what always strikes me about that sequence. It's not just like the tremendous visual effects, like a, her arms breaking off is so grotesque. And then just like these like floppy limbs, just like getting like tossed aside. They look so meaty. Yeah. 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 Like you can tell that this was screaming mad George too. Like those effects. It's just, it's so goopy and, and wet. But what, what really, kills me in that sequence is even when she's turned into a bug and by the way like earlier in the movie um rick is actually discussing franz kafka's the metamorphosis yeah. with another character in class which <laughs> i found like a really nice little touch but what really kills me is she is self-aware 
through that whole sequence. Like, even when she's a bug, she's still Debbie, and she knows what's going on. And, oh, that... That's the thing that will keep me up yep. at night. Like that's the, the face, yeah. that, that face, face part coming of that off. scene. Oh, <sighs> the only oh. scene, the only scene in the other in the rest of the franchise that just fucks with me as much as the 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 Roach one is in Five Greta's death. Greta's death, yes. yes. Oh, it's so hard to watch, especially yeah. when you see the um, the uncut. Version not oh cut yeah, down. yeah. Oh. Like, dude, I yeah. I will watch Martyrs any day of the week, but Greta's death. Oh, I, I'm out. I think I tapped out. You know, we're going to do French extremity, French extreme February. It looks like right now, and I know oh, I'm going to have to rewatch Martyrs, and I'm not looking forward to that. <laughs> oh man, it's rough. I, I tried rough. watching the American oh, version. God. I'm like, well, this will be. Oh, it's this awful. Be, it's re- I'm like, it'll be at least like toned down a little bit, and I couldn't. I tapped out after thirty. It was just so bad. That was a um, movie that even Blumhouse pulled out of. They were like, hey, oh, uh, we made this. Uh, never mind. We're, we're not part of this. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, but you, Kelly, you were talking about like the lighting and like the almost giallo like. Like to me, when I think of this movie, I think because it doesn't make any sense whatsoever in the context of the Elm Street yep. universe, but it's so fucking cool. <laughs> the four slash blade, the four slashes. In the <laughs> Nobody like notices. Neon, I love that neon scene. pink. It's oh, so great. God. It's so beautiful. Ready, ready Harlan, like spit in the face of Canon. Who's like, nope, fuck that. And we're going to make, mm-hmm. I'm going to make my own movie with my own vision. And it's going to be super fantastical. We're going to have this crazy mythical Freddy kind of thing with mirrors and, Alice is totally going to transform and there's going to be colors and lighting and set pieces and music. And I just will live. I live for this movie. I live for it. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. That and uh, the other visual touch I really appreciate is we talked a bit about Kristen's death, like before she actually passes out that overhead shot of Kristen, like spinning around the room, trying desperately to like get a friend on the phone yeah. or anything yeah. they can do to stay awake. It yep. just so mirrors the chaos going on inside of her brain yep. at that moment. It's, it's just such a, it's a great touch. Brilliant. Um, yep. The end. From the, mm-hmm. Yep. Terry, you from, friend you. From the opening, like it, it definitely asserts itself as being a different kind of movie. I love, I love Kincaid's, death mm-hmm. in well not necessarily the death but him in the the kind of like garbage wor- that turns into a world like yeah. the way the camera just pulls up and you see him and the whole world is this is this uh garbage place mm-hmm. like it's it's just it it speaks to like this very larger than life we're going to take things and we're just going to make it grander and bigger mm-hmm. and it's it's such a kind of um, a fascinating like entry point into like the thesis of like we're gonna make everything big we're just i'm just gonna show you how large this is at that at that very first kill yeah and it taps in like harlan taps into the athleticism of freddie as well like um anglin gets to be really nimble in this movie like Mm -hmm. i just think of the sequences of him like hopping from the floor to the church pew and then like kind of like tap dancing from pew to pew and then using leaning on the statues and oh yeah. yeah There's like a definitely an element of like Hong Kong cinema to this. And the other thing I thought of, and this is going to be a really weird comparison, and I don't know who's going to get this, but I don't know if anyone remembers the Marvin Hagler, Sugar Ray Leonard middleweight title fight from the around this time period. Yeah. No. Sorry, I didn't mean so so excited. So, <laughs> so, so they were like considered 
two of the best boxers in the mm-hmm. this is back when like people would pay to watch middleweights and like Hagler would just go pummel the shit out of people yep. he had had like been in these wars with like Tommy Hearns and like the famous uh, Roberto Duran where like it would basically when I, I love the Rocky movies, but the boxing in those, like, that would never happen in a real fight. And then you would watch, like, Marvin Hagler, like, just pummel the shit out of people while taking a hundred blows to the head. Uh, and Sugar Ray Leonard was, like, more of a dancer. He was more nimble. Um, that fight at the end with Alice and Freddie kind of reminds me of the um, Hagler-Leonard fight where they just kind of, like, duke it out. And Hagler is throwing haymakers and Leonard is dancing around, like... <laughs> So uh, to me, it felt like a prize fight. And I just kind of would, I mean, I would love to talk to Randy Harlan anyway, but like to know like what sort of influences went into that final sequence where they're just kind of like wailing on one another. You know, like one thing that we've been trying to do with this Elm Street series is do bonus episodes with people having to do with the film. Uh, You know, I don't think we're going to do it or be able to, but I mean, I have reached out to Randy Harlan, so fingers Mm -hmm. crossed, but uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. What and what's I remember that era of, of boxing. Like, I was never an athletic person, but, like, we'd always go to our my uncle's house. And, like, you know, my dad my dad had six brothers. Uh, you know, my, my grandma had seven sons. Jesus Christ. But they would all go to my uncle's house and pay-per-view every boxing match known to man. So, like, yeah. some of those matches, like the ones you're talking about with Haggard and, you know, Sugar Ray Leonard or the Roberto Duran and all the rematches that he had. You know, like those are like so huge to me growing up. And I totally see that. I never thought about it until you said that right now. But yeah, it does feel like those kind of fights. It's it's crazy. It definitely had that feel to it. So I know we're going to be doing two episodes on this movie. So I don't want to go too far down too many roads. But for my guests, and Kelly, I know we have something really specifically we're going to talk about in a minute. What am I missing that either of you wanted to discuss that I might have like glossed over or haven't brought up yet? You go ahead, Terry. You you, you start first. Um. I don't know if I think we've covered everything I really wanted to talk about. All right. So in that case, that's perfect. So that means fans, you're going to have to come back for more in a week. Um, So Kelly, you actually took part last week. You got to watch this really cool, um, this really cool event that happened. Can you tell us a little bit about that um, Dream Master reunion that went down? Yes. So there it was the 32. I don't know why they were celebrating 32 year <laughs> anniversary. Whatever. Let's it let's celebrate everything. It's a pandemic. So yeah, it was a 32 year uh anniversary of Dream Master. And they had done two events with two different companies. I didn't go to the first one, uh, but the second one I did go to, and it was a live live streaming event and a watch along with commentary from the casting crew and then a Q&A afterwards and i'm not going to lie that it was one of the best nights of my of my life it was because i have such love for this movie and i could talk about this movie and so many aspects of it for such a long time um it was so wonderful to experience this so pretty much everyone was there The only person that wasn't there cast-wise was, and now I'm blanking on his name. I should have made a list, but the gentleman that plays Dan was not there, but he was supposed to. Something happened last minute. Uh, Also, on Tuesday night, was filming something else. She's filming another movie, so she wasn't able to be there. But seriously, everyone was 
everyone else cast wise was there. Andrus Jones as Rick, who I love. Lisa Wilcox was there and she's just like timeless and ageless and so sweet. And yeah, um, production wise, Mick Strawn was there and he was the production designer for Nightmare uh, 3 and 4. Nick Benson was there and he did special effects um, mainly for the cockroach scene, but he was also involved with the Freddy chess scene at the end. Wow. And side note, folks, Nick Benson is always up for an interview and to hang out and talk about stuff. So if you're looking for somebody else to to maybe do something with, contact Nick we'll Benson. Out. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Um, and maybe even Mick Strawn. Mick Strawn might be up. He was, it was a hoot. So, so like everyone was there. And well, first off, Watching all these people set up Zoom Zoom for the first time was like watching old people Facebook, and it was hilarious. <laughs> and they're like, oh, Brooke, I got to get her on. Like Brooke Bundy, who played Kristen's mom. Why can't I remember? I just know her as Kristen's mom. That's terrible. Brooke Bundy. Yeah, but Brooke Bundy was there, and she didn't really understand how to use Zoom, and it was adorable. And, you know, watching this movie with a commentary with the entire cast was like an unforgettable experience. And like I said in the beginning of this this episode is that watching all of them together, like they're riffing on each other, they're razzing on each other and just talking about like their favorite scenes and just little tidbits that you can get here and there. Like McStrawn had a dream about that scene at the end with uh, Alice and Dan in that um, revolving tunnel. Um, he dreamt that scene with Freddie making that tunnel turn and like they're falling upside down and everything. So he dreamt that and he made it a reality in the in the show. And that's fantastic. So little tidbits here and there, you know, you got to, to see, uh, you got to learn. And oh, my goodness. Yeah, the chemistry between them, they've they have bonded so closely over the years. And you see that. And. I just, it was just like one of the best experiences of my life. Like how often do you get a chance to see one of your favorite movies with the cast alongside them? It was, it was incredible. Like it was just, I'm always, I'm always curious too, because like, you know, I struggle with interviews sometimes because I always, I'm like, Oh, I think what hasn't been asked yet, you know, I like, know. Um, especially when there are like so many documentaries and commentaries and makings of and retrospectives. Mm-hmm. Um, what were some of the questions that they were being asked about? Um, or like what sort of stories are they kind of like divulging from like behind the scenes? Um, questions. A lot of the questions were like pretty basic. Um, and even the, I can tell you some of the questions that I had were, I always like to ask, like, are you actual horror fans? Like, if you're in a horror movie, are you a horror fan? Not always the case. Sometimes they just, you know, are in horror movies. But Rodney Eastman is actually a big horror fan. And if you follow him on Instagram, he has, like, a four-page list of horror movies he's watched during the pandemic that he recommends. (laughs) And side note, he is Canadian, and I am Canadian, and that was wonderful to to learn about. (laughs) Um, Oh, my goodness. I was looking through my notes. I'm so sorry. Um, you know, just general, like what's your favorite, like besides dream master, what's your favorite Mm -hmm. sequel? It's not always going to be your own movie. Um, a lot of them really loved dream warriors (laughs) actually. (laughs) Um, you know, just a comment and it was really fun to when the mod, the kind of Alice getting ready montage, 
oh my God, because there was a chat with all of the people that had signed up and, and paid for this event. And so we all start going crazy, right? We're like, go Alice, yeah, fucking A. And then the actors are like, <laughs> oh my God, the chat is going crazy right now. And Alice is, uh, sorry, Lisa Wilcox is loving it. And I just love seeing people have a good time with something that they are a part of. You know what I mean? And, and we see so much in, in horror, people that maybe haven't really been in a lot of horror, but they've done... You know, for example, let's say Lisa Wilcox, you know, Brooke Thies in in this movie, Andrus Jones. Um, you know, they haven't been in tons of horror. Maybe this is their only horror right. movie. Well, at least is in part five. But we love their characters so much and they just embrace that. It's I find it unfortunate when actors don't embrace their horror roots. You know, I just find that right. kind of sad. It well, it's like for years, Kevin Bacon would never oh, talk God. about Friday the 13th. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, until he, I would say, until he hit a certain age and maybe the roles didn't come quite as easy as they used to. And then he was like, maybe I should go back and start oh, reminding yeah. people yeah. of what I've done. And what's, you know, with the movies like this, like, you know, and Andres, like Rick Andres Jones, he might have not had the kind of career that he thought he was going to have. Mm -hmm. Um, but because of movies like this, he'll always have, you know, he can eke out a living, you know, doing the convention circuit because people are always going to want to talk. Yep. Well, one of my favorite, that's a no. really wonderful thing. You, you, I'm I, sorry, no, I, I didn't going. mean to cut you off. I apologize. Uh, one of my favorite things about our recent chat with Ira Hyde and, uh, Will from dream warriors was like, there was such a reverence to not only the film he was in, but just like the series in general. Like, this was someone who just loved talking about the movie. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't just a movie he did. You know, mm -hmm. like, I, you know, it's going to our patrons first. But after that, you know, eventually after we're done all these, we're going to compile basically an Elm Street alumni bonus episode with all these interviews that we're doing. But, like, I was having such a hard time not just laughing hysterically listening to this guy talk because mm -hmm. he was so excited about what the movie means to fans and everything else. And I think that Elm Street, more than any movie, any franchise, I think it has the most amount of people that were in it that actually has reverence towards the films and what they yes. mean to people. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I totally agree with that. That's perfect. Yep. Completely. There's such yeah. a, yeah. there's such a bond and, there's, it's the Elm Street family. You hear that a lot when you listen to and meet these people in real life, that they, it's the Elm Street family. Like Heather Langenkamp also embraces all of this. Robert England and all of these people that are, that are in these movies. It's the family. The Elm Street kids, mm. like they're all together. And, and you could see that again in that, in that watch along with them. You know, they have just had so much fun with it and they bonded and you, they have created lifelong friendships out of this movie together. And that's a true magic. That is magical. And that comes with horror. I don't think that comes with almost anything else that it comes with. horror. No. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There aren't, there aren't ro romantic comedy conventions that pop mm -hmm. up all over the country. Right. Exactly. I, I, don't, I don't, I don't think, think so there's a, a walk to remember. <laughs> no. Right. You know, there's not like, you know, the guy that played like the bu uh, third busboy from the left in Love Actually isn't, you know, able to sign autographs for like 20 bucks a pop. Can yeah. you imagine if that was the case, though? <laughs> just like everyone going to like a romantic comedy convention. I don't want to imagine a world like that. <laughs> no, just like a bunch of Sweet November fans. No, 
Sweet, Sweet November. November. Oh, no. Okay. Hey. No, okay. Okay. Uh, like, hey, you were in the Valentine's Day that didn't start, David Boreanaz. <laughs> you know, just like, oh, man. All right. So we're going to talk more about this movie next week with our other panel of guests we have lined up. But before we sign out for the night, uh, Kelly, tell us a little bit about what's going on with Spinsters of Horror. Um, I know that you've been kind of plotting on expanding the site and the podcast a little bit. So tell us a little bit for our listeners that haven't listened to your show or know, are familiar with the site, what it's all about and what you have in the works. Thank you. Yes. So Spencers of Horror is a horror project with a 20-year-long friendship friend of mine named Jessica. And we create content for the website. We write for it. So there's blog posts. I'll keep this very general. But yeah, we write for the website and we release a once-a-month podcast called I Spit on Your Podcast. And uh, that is where we discuss horror movies and other mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. And that's kind of like our little slogan, our motto, but that's essentially what we do. And um, yeah, so what we, like like Mike said at the beginning of the episode, we just uh, celebrated our two-year anniversary, which has been life-changing for both of us. And we did not even realize that would happen. Thank you. Thank you. Um, And right now, Jess is our... She is our podcast editor and website master, and she is putting together our 26th episode on Buffy, the Vampire Slayer, the show. And that is our final exploration into Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's a very passionate episode. I get very emotional, apparently. And uh, (laughs) um, yeah, we have a lot of fun stuff that we do. You know, each month is a theme and we kind of run with it. Our social media is based around a theme. We write stuff based around the theme. So I'll tell you now, but September is all about Grady Hendrix, uh, the yeah. horror author and sweet, sweet, funny man. And so we're kind of going like horror literature, which we haven't actually delved into yet. We've done movies and TV shows, but now we're going into literature. So we are discussing and reading. We sold our souls. So going back to our heavy metal roots to, to read <laughs> some horror, horror lit uh, about selling your soul to the devil for fame and fortune. So yeah. So it's spinsters of You can find us on social media at horror spinsters or at spinsters of horror. We always got stuff going on. It's, Thank you. I'm looking forward to those Grady Hendrix um, centered episodes. I know like my best friend's exorcism along with like Paul Tremblay's uh, head full of ghosts, I think are two of the best examples of, of tremendous horror literature in the, of the past decade. I agree with and that. It's funny this past Christmas, um, my sister and I, when we exchanged gifts, we each bought one another um, unknowingly a copy of my best friend's exorcism. <laughs> I love that. Like, you know, because we're like, Oh my God, like this book's so good. I know that like, my brother, my sister will oh. love this, and I thought that was really Mike. Nice. Uh, have you, have you read Horror Story yet? I have not oh, read. Oh, so good, yet. so good. Uh, right now, I'm going through paperbacks from hell. Oh, I love I it. So, yeah, um, yeah. So, so Terry. Yes. Which of your projects <laughs> do you want to talk about? You have so much going on. You're like the James Brown of the horror community without, uh, without some of the more problematic aspects. Uh, thanks, I think. Yeah, scary. <laughs> um, I, I mean, you know, Gaily Dreadful's going on. We're doing a bunch of Fantasia coverage. Um, Scarred for Life, we've 
been luckily and lucky enough to have a bunch of really awesome guests recently. Um, and then I, we are horror. It's a zine that we just, the first episode just, or first issue just came out. Our second issue is coming out in October. That's going to be around slashers. And, um, I guess I'm probably not going to get fired if I say this, but our, our third issue that we're going to start taking, um, pitches for is going to be about family. So if you have any, if you're a writer out there and you want to make some money and be in a, a zine, start thinking about some movies centered around family. Um, but yeah, other than that, I'm just trying to keep running from this nightmare um, huh, of uh, COVID. Um, <laughs> can, you, can you speak to the genesis of We Are Horror a little bit? Because it, it, it maybe, I don't, was it a fortuitous accident that say that like the zine was announced right around the time that everything with Sinistate started to expose, uh, started to kind of rear its head. But I seem to remember like that's when the zine was announced and that like you, the focus of we are horror and you know, you don't have to be humble, but I think what you're trying, what you're doing in providing this space for voices that aren't always heard mm. and maybe don't rise to the front maybe don't rise like to the front of like these major publications like correct me if i'm wrong but like 80 percent of the content is either from women from queer folks from the latin x community from persons of yeah. color or indigenous folks like you're really creating like what i think has the potential years from now to be looked at as like a really important piece mm -hmm. of of like horror criticism and horror literature mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, we it it sort of, I I mean Ryan Larson and and Tyler uh, Liston are the the two that kind of came up with it, and they they approached me and 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 Danny to be editors on it. Um, but yeah, it, it kind of came out. You know, er, the horror community this summer has been going through a rough time, and the Sinistate crap happened, and Fangoria, which is now risen from the ashes, went away, and there was we we were we were upset that there was so much focus on a lot of negativity. And I mean, you know, Ryan Larson, I mean, if you know him, he's a very happy, he wants to promote everybody. Um, and so he kind of was, what if we did this magazine that was at least 80% of, of the content was going to be from by POC or LGBTQ or women or disabled um, that, that we were going to have a focus on, on the people that you don't necessarily see a lot of content from. Um, and he kind of, kind of based it off of like anatomy of a scream and, uh, sort of that kind of that magazine that had this other focus. And so I, yeah, I mean, I, I think I, it was something that as, as a gay person, I wanted to have my, my name associated with, cause I, I would like to see more diverse voices in the community for sure. And it's available exclusively as an easy right now. Is that yes? The case? That's the case right now. It's just going to be an easy that comes out um, every few every two months. Um, so mm -hmm. the first one came out in August. The next one's going to come out in October. Um, and we take pitches uh, again. The focus is eighty percent of the content will be from uh, a minority group. But um, yeah, I it's it's been kind of fun looking at 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 those, and we're looking down the line of of ways to create hard copies of it or look at different ways of, of, of trying to get that, that out there for sure. And where would one subscribe? Is yes. It it's through Patreon. If you go to Patreon and you look for, we are horror zine, you'll, you'll find it right up. And it's, um, I think it's four bucks a month and you'll get, you're going to get, uh, depending on what you 
subscribe to you, you're going to get either at least the magazine, or you might also get extra articles from either uh, the four of us, uh, the editors, the owners, or from other people that we uh, we that have pitched and we want to put out there on the site as well. Excellent. Well, I know I'm a subscriber to it. I would strongly encourage all of our listeners to go check that out. I think I don't say this lightly, and I don't say it to blow smoke up your ass. I really do think that that work like this is something that we're going to look back on in the coming years and be like, this was a either a turning point or something that is going to stand as a really important piece of like horror criticism, especially given this moment of time. And I don't, you know, I don't say things like that. Like, I hope that's the case. I really do. (laughs) So Jerry, you actually had a pretty killer article or interview drop today. Did you know? Oh, fuck yeah. Sorry. I got sidetracked for that. Uh, (laughs) Well, first of all, before I get into that, uh, what Terry and the crew are doing, uh, I would second that Uh, really great work, exceptional work. You guys should, Definitely be proud of yourselves. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, I had a really fun interview with Tony Todd dropping Dread Central today. It was one of the most just enjoyable conversations I've ever had with anyone. Like it was it was for this film called Immortal, which ended up being so good. Like I loved that movie. And then we started talking about Candyman. And then we started talking about just musical recommendations. And we started talking about like Smokey Robinson and the Killers and a bunch of stuff. With Tony oh, wow. Todd, it was so nuts. But yeah, That's amazing. that... Uh, I released a new EP uh, about a week ago, I think. Uh, it's it's pretty out there. Uh, I, I lost a few followers over it because it's it's very uh, uh, kink based. Uh, my wife and I are both part of this project, Rainy Days for Ghosts, so it's it's that. Uh, yeah, totally. And I'm I actually Tyler Liston from Weird Horror. Uh, he had a piece that I wrote that he's actually wanting to put on the Patreon for, for that site. So, I mean, if you guys subscribe to that, I have a piece on Starman coming pretty soon. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Tons of stuff. And also really quickly before we wrap up speaking on books, we we were talking about books a second ago, uh, clown in, in a cornfield by Daniel or Daniel Caesar. Uh, I would definitely recommend that Adam Caesar. I mean, sorry. Uh, definitely recommend that it's a YA slasher book, but it never feels like a YA book. Like I, it's one of my favorite books around. So go for it. We'll check that out. Well, folks, I hope you've enjoyed this. Um, you know, like what I have coming up over on psychoanalysis a couple days after this are, um, next episode post Thursday at midnight, where we talk about paranoia, um, through the lens of, 2012 sinister which is one of my favorite horror movies it's a really fun discussion with lara and jen over in psychoanalysis um jen has texted us about some other ideas that we can do for that show and i think you'll see a lot more content coming out in the form of like smaller episodes um in between our bi-weekly schedule there so i hope you know the feedback on psychoanalysis has been tremendous and really humbling um you know and the feedback here again listeners we can't thank you enough um if you're not already please give us a follow over at twitter over at uh pod and pendulum you can join our facebook group which we don't really do a lot on yet but that'll grow over time if you go to facebook.com and search out pod and pendulum you'll find us there um the you know we put the request out a couple weeks ago for some new reviews and I think like 20 people 
either like rated or reviewed us in the span of a few hours, which we really appreciate. So um, we will be back next week with more A Nightmare on Elm Street Dream Master with guest uh, Alex Secker, who will be returning, and Mike Vanderbilt, who I think should be a professional right. podcast guest, much in the way like in the 1970s you'd have Dom DeLuise like, on the Carson <laughs> show or Don Rickles on the Carson show. Like Mike Vanderbilt could be like, if there was a job, a professional podcast co-host or guest, like he would get it. So we're definitely looking forward to talking more of that. Also, uh, Mike, I don't like. Uh, can we announce who we're recording with this week for the bonus stuff for Patreon? Sure, go ahead. All right. Well, everyone, uh, really quickly, you all know the Patreon thing. We have a Patreon pod in the pinch of them: two dollar, four dollar, ten dollar level, I believe. Uh, we always two, strive five to and ten. two five and ten. I apologize, but uh, we always strive to create as much bonus content for people as possible. Like the show, the main show will always be free. But we have a lot of bonus things that we're always working on, whether it's blog posts or bonus episodes. And like I said a few minutes ago, we're releasing short interviews with Elm Street alumni during the series for our Patreons. And they'll get to hear each interview uh, early. And at the end of the series, we're going to put them all onto a main show together and release it for everyone. Uh, this week, we are having Lisa Wilcox on the show, oh. Alice herself. Oh my- Oh my uh, god! We are so excited about it. So yeah. excited about it. Uh, and uh, you know, there's quite a few people that are maybe interested. So I don't want to say who yet until it's confirmed. But uh, yeah, it's going to be a wild time. And uh, yeah, so if you subscribe to our Patreon, you'll get to hear Lisa Wilcox early. If not, you can hear the whole show later down the road. So go to patreon.com pod and pendulum. You'll also get our first two bonus episodes that are up there, which are on it follows and the color out of space. And we haven't picked one yet for September, but uh, we'll do that. And I might like just do some random commentaries or whatnot too, to just throw more content up there for all of our supporters who we really appreciate. You also get access to our Slack channel, blog posts, all that fun stuff. Uh, we much like the Paperboy in Better Off Dead. We want your two dollars, basically. Um, all right, so that is it for this week. After the uh, end credits, I would say stick around, folks, because returning to the show once again is my daughter Ada to give you her unfiltered views on Dream Master <laughs> and what she has deemed Vacation Freddy. Until <laughs> next week, we'll be back. Once again, foolish friends, Freddy Krueger is on your phone. Dial this number now. I've got some tales to tell. Freddy's favorite bedtime stories. <laughs> Dead time stories. All brand new and straight from my boiler room to your home. It's Freddy Krueger on your phone. So dial this number now if you dare. Tell them Freddy sent you. Two dollars the first minute, 45 cents each additional minute. Children, get your parents' permission before you dial. This is Ira Hyden, the Wizard Master from Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. And in my dreams, I listen to the pod and the pendulum. You ready? Yes. Testing. One, two, one, two. Dog. Okay, so who are we? I'm Mike. I'm back again. Who am I with? Ada. Me. And what are we here to talk about tonight? Nightmare on Elm Street number four. Which is the Dream Master. Okay. So, in your opinion, who is the dream master of the movie? Freddy. 
You think Freddy was a dream master? Because Why is he that? always keeps coming back. He, he always never keeps dies. Coming back and he never dies. It looks like he died at the end of this one, though, doesn't it? The sequels always return dead. That's true. All right. So I think Atlas is supposed to be the dream master, right? Yeah. Well, what what does she do? She pretty much absorbs her friends, I guess, mm -hmm. which so, I did not understand. Yeah. And then she kills Freddy. Yeah. So you have a pretty controversial take on Alice right here. I don't dislike her. I don't hate her. She is that all the other characters are better than her. You called her a dirty hoe. <laughs> no, I didn't. You said Alice is a dirty hoe. <laughs> Which I was shocked. So why don't you like Alice as much as the other characters? Because the other characters at least have something. That girl is smart. She has asthma. That guy can use nunchucks, I guess. Mm-hmm. And one guy is really handsome, but yeah. she is the red-headed girl, and a, yeah. okay. she's there. Did you fart? Yes. Oh, my God. That is... <laughs> oh. I can taste that like it was dinner. That's awful. Oh, my goodness. That was the worst. Okay, so who comes back in this one? Who comes back? Yeah. Um... The two guys from Kincaid and what's the other dude? Joey. Kincaid, Joey, and the... Kristen. Kristen. Yeah, it's tough to know Kristen because it's played by someone else. Yeah. And what happens to them this time around? All of them die. They die pretty quick, don't they? Yeah, and it kind of makes you sad because I know the last movie it's like working up so they, they survive and they finally beat Freddy. Yeah. And then they just get Ooh. killed by Freddy. The cat got you good there, right under the yeah. eye. Right, oh my goodness. You got a big, big, big scratch there. He almost got your eye, honey. Yeah. I'm going to have to get rid of that cat. No. We're going to put him in the oven. He got scared and then he, he ran. He didn't get scared. He just is a dope. All right. Anyway. Um, so what were some of the better dream sequences in this movie? Some of the better... The cockroach woman. Mm -hmm. She got. She didn't like bugs. Mm -hmm. And then she got turned into a cockroach. Yeah. Yeah. And got smooshed. Yeah, that was pretty gross, wasn't it? Yeah. And there is a very, and it's, it's, I don't know if you heard this in the movie, but at one point when they were in the classroom, you hear Rick, who is the nunchuck guy, talking about a story called The Metamorphosis. And that's by a writer called Franz Kafka. And he has a short story called The Metamorphosis about a guy who turns into a cockroach. Really? Yeah. You're probably going to have to read that for a literature class one day. It's a famous story. What? Yeah. Why would, like, why do you always have to read, like, the super famous stories? Well, why would you read stories by a bunch of bums? Because those are right. the stories that other people won't talk about, so then you're less likely to plagiarize. Well, yeah, why would you read a story about a guy who just eats poop, you know? <laughs> Something you so can learn about Jeff and his poop-eating adventures. You, know, you need to read stories by men and women that are excellent writers. So, anyway, um, how do you think the nightmares in this movie compare to some of the other ones? What did you notice about them? Um, I don't, I don't, I really, like, what do you mean by that? So, did this movie have nightmares that were bigger and wilder and crazier than some of the other ones um a lot of the other ones they tried to make it like more into reality yeah. but was this one freddy just went insane with the dreams they were a little bit silly right yeah like what about the pizza one <gasps> pizza what, what did he have on his, pe on his pizza balls what were the what were the um 
meatballs made of? Souls. That's right. My favorite ingredient, soul meatballs. Soul food. Um, so there's a lot more, like, imagination in this one, right? Yeah. And was this a good example of vacation, Freddy? Yeah, he just puts right. on his sunglasses at <laughs> the beach. Vacation, yep. Freddy. So what the hell is vacation, Freddy? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, my God. But you mentioned him again, so now he's here. That's a bit crazy. Vacation, Freddy. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> Trying to think what else. What else did you like about this movie? What else did I like about this movie? Again, like in the third one, there were more characters. Mm -hmm. But I didn't like was that all the characters that I liked got killed. They did. They died pretty quickly, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the one character that was meh for me got lives. to stay alive. So she's a really popular character, too. She's in the next one, too. What? Does yeah. she die? She's in the dream. We'll have to watch it and find out. I hope she dies so I don't have to oh have a God. boring character. Well, I think we're going to... Wow, that's... <laughs> she's one of Dad's favorite characters. <laughs> really? Yeah, I like her. I mean, I like her, but there's nothing special about her. Well, maybe there's nothing special about me. You know, people <laughs> like me. Um, how does this one compare to some of the other Elm Streets for you? How does this one compare? I think this one was like like the as like as like the dreams. They were mm -hmm. like less like realistic, like mm -hmm. and less and more like wow, that's really cool. It's more like wait, what? How is that mm -hmm. possible? So, in your opinion, is Freddy still scary in these movies, or is he a bit more funny and silly now? A bit more funny and silly, less I'm I'm like less like psychopathic, and I'm yeah. gonna kill you in your sleep, kind of Freddy. He's more of a comedian telling jokes. Yeah, I hope yeah. there's another movie where he's actually like not a comedian telling yeah. jokes, and more of like. Oh, well, I think maybe you'll like one of the ones that Dad's not a big fan of. Um. Let's see. I'm trying to think what else. Oh, what do you think of the parents in this movie? There's Kristen's mom who gives her the sleeping pills, and there's Alice and Rick's dad who seems to be really mean and yells a lot. What do you think of the parents in this movie? Well, you know that scene where she's imagining herself and he's saying, what is this, rabbit food? Mm -hmm. I wish she actually did what she dreamt about. Smash the... the and the end of the oh. movie, he's just still there. Yeah. And she doesn't, like, do anything to him, mm -hmm. tell him anything. I wish she nope. did that. Or did just something... smash the bowl maybe over his head. Yeah. That would have been pretty neat if she did that. All right. <laughs> Any other thoughts on this movie? Any other thoughts on this movie? Hmm, let me think. Um, one of my favorite characters was the nunchuck dude. Rick? Yeah. What did you like about Rick? I don't know. He has nunchucks. You thought he was okay. Did he you does. like his hair? He had his a lot hair of, looks like... Mm -hmm. What does he do to his hair? He puts a lot of product in it. Oh. So it makes it stick out everywhere. Yeah. He kind of had a stupid death, didn't he? Yeah, he just... I don't. Yeah. I didn't want him to die. I thought he no. was going to live. I know. And then she had the dream where he came out of the coffin, but he had to go back in it, huh? Yeah, another reason, like... And that didn't like you make me thinking. Wow, that's wow, that's so cool. It just made mm -hmm. me thinking. Wait, so this is a daydream, but she's not mm -hmm. actually sleeping, but he's dead. Yeah. But what? What is this? What? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So I think that pretty much sums up our thoughts on Dream Master. But what? I think that pretty much sums up this movie. <laughs> yeah. All right. Compared to the other Elm Streets, where does this rank? One, two, three, or four? Um. Um, I'm 
gonna go with three just because I didn't like the second one. Okay, so you like the third one more and the first one more. No, wait, oh, are you going... So I think I like... I don't know. I just, like, this would be second to last because, number one, it didn't make me think, like, wow, this is so cool. It made me think, so what's going on right yeah. now? You got a bit confused sometimes, right? Also, I fell asleep and we had to rewatch the ending. We had to rewatch the end. Well, it was really late, though, to be fair, so... And what do you think of the end, though, when Freddy gets all the arms and everything come out of him? That was freaking gross. That I love that scene. Cool. That was, I think, the best bit. That was the best Freddy death, as far as I I didn't want to look, but it was so, like... Yeah. All right, so listeners, we'll be back. We actually are doing Dream Master again next week. So, Ada, maybe I'll show you an episode of the Freddy TV show that used to be on. Wait, there's a TV show? It ran for two seasons, and it was not great, but Dad watched it every week. Why was it not great? They were made for about $20, and Freddy's not in it for more than a minute of a show. Well, then how is it the Freddy TV show? We'll, we'll have to watch an episode and find out. All right. All right, we'll be back next week. Bye.